talking about season one, episode seven of Ted Lasso, Make Rebecca Great Again. And this episode prominently features a perennial favorite in both fiction and in real life, karaoke. Kathy, do you have any fond memories of karaoke? I do, in fact, have several cherished karaoke memories. And it's a little surprising because I'm not a confident singer and I don't think I would ever organize a karaoke night, but when I have gone, it's been magical. And I will say that the most transported by laughter I have ever been as an adult doubled over can't breathe kind of laughter has been at karaoke. Why was it so funny? Do you think? There's just something about somebody who personally committing to perform a song that just changes how you think about them. And there, there is really something, if you, get the, if you get the song choice right and you've got the right person who is just completely there in the moment and selling that song like you can't believe... It can be so funny. What's the other one that made you laugh so hard? There was a karaoke night where I watched a friend of ours perform Frank Sinatra's My Way. You would think you would steer away from a song that is sung by someone who famously has an incredible voice, but that's not actually how karaoke works. You just need to pick a song that you can just perform And I think at one point he was lying on his back, flailing his arms and legs around in, I just had never seen this particular person in this way. And I just felt so connected with him and with everybody in the room. And it it was really just kind of magical. A good friend of ours, although he's long left Scotland and has become an American citizen, his mode of delivery still bespeaks his native land. He decided he was going to sing, apparently it was his standard, Hotel California. And if you can just imagine hearing the lyrics, the Hotel Californian, as sung by somebody with a Scottish accent, you get some sense of why I was simply paralyzed with laughter. I could not move. I laughed the entirety, even when The owners of the karaoke bar were trying unsuccessfully to snatch the microphone from his hand. He hung in there and he delivered that song. And uh, I'll tell you, I didn't want to check out any time. I didn't want to leave. Why is it that work colleagues are drawn to karaoke, do you think? I do think it builds on something we talked about previously, the idea of team building. It shows you people in a new light. It makes you feel connected in a common endeavor. It allows you to show appreciation for each other. And ultimately it's just funny. There's something about laughing together that really helps a group feel cohesive. Even the monkeys do it. Uh, Monkeys do karaoke. (laughs) (laughs) Monkeys like to laugh together. I didn't know that. So that's part of what our primate ancestors have given us. Continuing our evolutionary psychology theme, little fake science here from your friends at Lasso Lessons. Chimps like to laugh together, and that's uh, indicative of our common origins. Coming up next is Season 1, Episode 7, Make Rebecca Great Again. I'm Mike Merrill. I'm Kathy Buckman. And this is Lasso Lessons. 
diving into this particular episode of Ted Lasso, once again, I'm just struck by the economical way that the show sets up all its major issues. It's a short show. It's half an hour, yet they strand together these three different things, at least all going on at the same time. This one opens a little confusingly with a voice saying, no, no, no. And you realize that it's actually Nate. He's showing everyone how they should pack the luggage under the bus. Ultimately, he gets locked in uh, to the cargo hold of the bus. But this is interesting because it is really hard to imagine Nate saying no. Nate's not somebody who tells people what to do. And I was wondering here if they're just setting up what's going to happen later in this episode where Nate very much tells people what to do. Yeah, no, good point. We don't think of Nate as a strong presence, but we are now starting to see him as someone who does have strong opinions. At least about luggage packing. And then we get some of the other dominant threads of this episode. We hear Ted talking on the phone to his soon-to-be ex-wife, Michelle. We hear that the team is going to Liverpool for a match. We hear her asking about the divorce papers. We then cut right to a shot of Rebecca's computer highlighting an email that says, happy anniversary, Rebecca. So notice all the things. We, we know where they're going. We see the continuing issue around Ted's marriage. We see the fact that Rebecca hasn't completely freed herself from her own previous marriage. And we get a little bit of sense of, as we've talked about a little bit before, some of the equivalence between Rebecca's position and Ted's position. We think of them as completely different people, but they are undergoing a similar experience, uh, similar disorienting and... I'm sure, sad experience of losing a spouse. And this is all done like in the first couple minutes of screen time. I think of the TV of my youth, Jim Rockford would step out of his trailer, open his car door, get in his car, drive some nameless streets of LA, park, get out of his car, walk to the front door of the office building, through the lobby, down a hallway, open an office door, cross the office floor to finally arrive at the reception desk where he would likely tell some lie about who he was and why he was there. That was a couple of minutes of screen time in the TV of my youth. Today, in the first three minutes, you had three different threads set all up, not, not only set up, but interlaced. Yeah, it's incredibly fast. There's a real economy of storytelling that is happening, particularly in the television that we're watching. And I think it allows for this sort of interplay between comic scenes, often very light comic scenes, and more serious issues. You know, this is an episode in which, as we'll see, Ted has a serious panic attack. That doesn't seem like a comic theme. So I think some of the reason they can do that is they just cover so much ground so fast. For a comedy, they really don't push too hard for comedy, which I find fascinating. We see Ted in the locker room trying to rally the troops for the Everton match. They never win in Everton, he's told. The last time was 60 years ago. Once in Liverpool, Rebecca and Keeley plan their evening, get drunk, have a nice meal, and leave the past in the past. It should be noted that Keeley, as well, has just departed a relationship. Enter Flo Collins, who Rebecca calls sassy. Rebecca has largely avoided her and her goddaughter for the past six years, a goodly part of her marriage to Rupert, we assume. At dinner, Rebecca flirts via sassy with the waiter. On her way to a smoke, sassy runs into Ted in the hotel lobby. Later, as an apparently drunk and distraught Ted considers his divorce papers, Nate pushes a note under the door. Ted rises, grabs the note, opens the door, and yells at Nate. I would say as a member of the audience here, I am quite annoyed with Ted for 
yelling at poor Nate, who's clearly very torn about pushing this piece of paper underneath the door. It really goes to show you how distraught Ted is. It's interesting how they use Ted's hair as an indicator of his emotional state. In the previous episode, after his long walk from home to the Richmond clubhouse, we see his hair slightly in disarray as he babbles on. And here we see his hair completely a mess. And so <laughs> the use of Ted's hair as a uh, emotional characterization is a uh, kind of a humorous note. I agree. It, it almost makes yelling at Nate make sense because look at his hair. <laughs> right. Right. With hair like that, you know, he's not in his right mind. Next day in the locker room, Ted calls Nate aside, apologizes for his behavior the night before, and says that he has read through Nate's thought. He agrees with it all, but Ted can't read it. Nate has to. Nate then reads his comments in a sort of insult comic way, much to his own discomfort and to that of the team, who ultimately rise up behind Roy Kent's resultant anger. We cut immediately to the announcer. The impossible has happened. Richmond, 1-0. Kent was like a man possessed. The team heads to karaoke. In one of the tropes of the series, Rebecca and Sassy have a moment outside. Sassy tells Rebecca that she has to take responsibility for her part of her marriage. When during karaoke, Rebecca sings the theme to Frozen, everyone is impressed, but Ted, his hands once again a twitch, as we've seen in previous episodes, runs out of the room. Let it go. And of course, this echoes... Uh, a couple of things, one of which is this is what Michelle says as she departs London, that he's not giving up. He's letting her go. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is really good English teacher stuff there. I think you're right. That's exactly what triggers him is the similarity in the phrasing. He is experiencing a full on panic attack. Rebecca comforts him. And of course, this closes another loop, right? Because in a previous scene before the children, we saw another scene outside, lots of scenes of individuals outside where the groups are gathered within. We saw a scene where Ted comforted Rebecca after she had a run-in with Rupert. This closes the loop because now Rebecca is comforting Ted. We next see Ted back at the hotel to Celeste's Strange signing the divorce papers, takes a picture on his Apple phone, and then texts it off to her attorney. And this whole scene, by the way, the shot is on his face. We only know he's signing and taking the picture and sending the text by the sounds of the Apple iPhone. And of course, Apple is the originator of the series and its sponsor. I thought it's interesting just how they focused on his face because we want to see his emotional reaction. He seems actually pretty calm and collected. And it draws upon the fact we all know what these sounds mean in our world today. Yeah, that's a lot of economy of storytelling there too. It's nonverbal. It's just using the sounds of our digital media that tell us unequivocally that he has just snapped a photo of something and sent it. If Jim Rockford had ever gotten divorced, it would have taken episodes for them to get through that. Roy walks Keeley home and damn, does he look good in that jacket and jeans? I think he may do for this what John Slattery did for the three-piece suit in Mad Men. Yeah, that's a well-tailored jacket. Brent Goldstein is a stand-up comedian who's also a writer on the show and became an actor, but he can wear clothes. He's probably the best-dressed comic I've seen. I think of Jerry Seinfeld. We always bring, come back to Seinfeld. I think of Jerry Seinfeld wearing his jacket and jeans. Uh, not the same. Brett's got it down. If it's Jerry Seinfeld versus Brett Goldstein, I think Brett's going to win the blazer off. 
Roy gives Keely a single extended kiss, which surprises and clearly disappoints her. We see Rebecca picking up the waiter and Sassy drops it on Ted. Isn't it strange, Celeste intones, how people can change from strangers to friends into lovers. And strangers again. Indeed. All right, Kathy, did you see any callbacks here to previous episodes? Yeah, we like to do this to help our themes sink in a bit. So yes, there are some definite callbacks here. We see more evidence of a leadership style that we had spoken about in a previous episode from Rebecca, kind of this punitive or manipulative leadership style. And she's at it again, leaving Higgins behind when everybody else gets to go on the trip to Liverpool. We also see more anger from Ted. Obviously, we've talked about this in the recap where he snaps at Nate, but he quickly apologizes. And this is a sign of, I think, Ted's self-awareness. He knows he was over the line. And so a clear apology is required. And last but not least, we see a lot more hugging. We see Keeley hugging Rebecca repeatedly and at length because she is upset about this being her anniversary weekend. Do you see any major new themes? I would say there is one major new theme here of interest to us in our discussions of leadership and learning. I would characterize the theme as the possibility that we all have to transform by changing the stories that we tell about ourselves. That's kind of abstract. So let's make this a little more real. The first example that I see in which people are able to change their story is the way the entire Richmond team takes a story about themselves as a team and changes it. They start out with a very clear story about Everton. Everton is the team they never beat. Everybody really seems to believe this, right? If we have not beaten a team in 60 years, then they are the team we never beat. Ted, once he hears this, makes some jokes to lighten the mood, but then he says something kind of profound. He says, unless one of you has a crystal ball, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's why we play the game. And I think this is more the story that a sports team needs to have about itself is we could always win. There's no unwinnable games. What he's trying to do here, I think, is to try to shake them out of this very negative story. Now, luckily, Ted has an ally in this. He has Nate. Nate says very clearly, I believe this team can do anything. Nate is really actually not caught up in this story that the team has about themselves. So Ted asks, okay, help me here. Help me say something to this team that is going to change their thinking. Now, what's really interesting is when Ted asks him directly, Nate says, no, I can't do that. And then he tells this very strange story about what could happen if he shares his thoughts about the team and Ted doesn't like them. This is a story I think you would call catastrophizing, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's really done for comedic effect. So if I tell you what I really think and you don't like it, you'll fire me and then people will mock me and then my face will melt off. Yeah, that ending point tells you that it's catastrophizing. But this is a pretty standard thing that we all do, right? We assume this chain of effects. If I don't finish this report by midnight and get it to my boss, he'll fire me and I'll find myself on the street. We think things like that all the time. We do. And what's important to notice is that's a story. That's a little narrative that you've created. It's like a little movie in your head. And once you've created a story, it actually on some level psychologically feels kind of real to you. 
even if it's super exaggerated, there's a part of it that's very difficult to shake. I come at a real interest in the stories that people tell about themselves because of one colleague, one very important colleague that I had who actually, it's very sad, recently passed away. His name is Neil Stroll. He was one of the founders of the executive coaching program at Georgetown University. I would say that the major insight that he had about what executive coaches are doing with their clients is they're trying to figure out what stories their clients have about themselves and then help their clients essentially create a new story. One of his lines, I will never forget it, is that it's very hard to be a leader from a story where you're the victim. If you, though, can create a story where you're the hero, that just sets you up in a different place to be a different kind of leader and get a different kind of outcome. I felt that so strongly watching this episode that this episode was fundamentally about the power of the story that people tell themselves and the power that we have to change that story. Though Nate was initially very reluctant to be the person who steps up to help the team shape a new story, he does it and he does it beautifully. So there is once again, another locker room scene where it turns out that the note that Nate had pushed under Ted's door in the hotel was his thoughts about the various players and the areas where they really needed to start thinking differently and behaving differently. And Nate is pushed, but he does it. He stands up in front of the entire team and he inspires them to think differently. Though as, yeah, as you might notice, it's sort of comedic roast (laughs) at the same time. It's all very much played like a very tense, but still funny scene. So what are some of the things that Nate shares with the players that you think are basically encouragements to rethink their stories? In a lot of cases, he offers an observation about a person, something that they might not know that they are locked into, but that they have the power to change. For Isaac, for instance, he says, you are playing as if you're worrying about looking tough, but instead you could make a shift to being intimidating without having to be physical. You want to be tough, Isaac? It's not what you think it is. You have a goal, but you're telling yourself the wrong story about how to achieve it. Yeah, I think that's really well put. You see sort of a bemused look on Isaac's face, but it continues on the same vein. So to Sam, he says, Sam, you are getting beat by the opposing player because you're being indecisive. And he says that he's imprisoned by his own thoughts. To Colin, he says, you are playing as if you're somebody you're not. You're trying to play like a Brazilian. And, you know, it just keeps going on and on along these same lines. And then obviously the most important and significant observation that Nate offers is the one to Roy. Roy, you're slow, but it was never your speed or even your smarts that made you a good player, even when you were at your prime. Here's a new story. It's your anger. You need to let out your anger. And when Roy turned over to the locker room bench and just wordlessly bent over and muscled it and destroyed it, to me, this felt like this is the new story for this team. We are powerful people who can make things happen. 
And he doesn't do it with words. He does it physically by demonstrating it with this act of destruction. And it's pretty inspiring. Okay, great. That's how Nate is basically offering them some way to re-see themselves and thereby behave differently, retell their story about what kind of player they are. So that's about, that's the players. That's how Nate is inspiring them. What about Ted? So the end result of all of these kind of liberating ways of thinking about themselves that Nate provides to the team, it works. They create a new story. They are no longer the team that can't beat Everton because they win. And then what about Ted? So Ted has a really strong story about what kind of leader he is. And generally speaking, that's a good thing. It's important to have a leadership philosophy. It's important to have a story about who you are as a leader. And it's important to tell that story to other people. But Ted is pretty locked into this story and is not seeing it from the outside. And at this point, it doesn't feel to me like he's very open to changing it. But we start to see some evidence that perhaps he probably should. So one moment in the episode early on, we have the reporter in the parking lot who asks Ted about the possibility the team is going to get relegated. And Ted's answer makes it really clear that he doesn't understand what relegation is. His knowledge of how Premier League soccer works is so shallow that the word is just basically not meaningful to him. And I think this should give him pause, right? Ted is unclear on the basic metrics by which success is going to be measured. I would say that this is not a sign of good leadership. Instead, what Ted really still wants to talk about here is the relationships that he's building with players. And so he pivots almost immediately to talk about Jamie and Jamie leaving. And he says something like, it breaks my heart a little. The connection that I build with players is more important than anything that happens on a patch of grass. This is just Ted. He's locked into this story about how he's trying to help his players be better people and create connections with them. But it is not all that's required of him in this moment. I would say at this point, it is pretty clear that Ted needs to change his story. He likes his story. He's pretty locked into it. But I don't think it's the story that he needs right now. Yeah, we're going to see this come back in uh, episodes shortly where Coach Beard makes this clear to him. So that's Ted. And as we know, Ted ultimately does show this panic attack, which seems very related to his marriage, but also may some ways be reflecting other pressures, other stresses in his life or around the team. How about Rebecca? In many ways, I think this is the best example of somebody appreciating the power of transformation in how they tell their story and understanding the power they have to change that story. Sassy has come to Liverpool to support Rebecca. And at one point, Rebecca apologizes to her for not being there for her friend and for her goddaughter. Almost under her breath, she says, that man took so much from me. And it's that statement that provokes Sassy to give a pretty strong response. Sassy says, okay, Rupert was a horrible man. He held you captive, but you climbed every step of that tower on your own. Really what Sassy is pointing out here is that Rebecca made some choices here too, and that positioning herself as Rupert's victim is actually the wrong way to tell the story. It's not the right story. And so Sassy continues, I will be your biggest defender, but you have to own up to the role that you played. 
I think this gets us back to what we were talking about, that it's really hard to be a leader from a victim story. And that's very clearly what Rebecca has. She has a story that she was Rupert's victim. I think that in order for Rebecca to be a happier person, I don't know, this is my personal opinion, uh, it it might be helpful at this point if she really stepped back and thought about that story and retold it. But if she told herself a different story, which is he was a bad guy, but I made some bad choices and my choices are always mine to make, a lot of stuff might start changing in this show. If she really changed her story and stopped feeling like a victim, then what would happen to her secret revenge plot? This revenge plot is based on the fact that she feels that something has been taken from her that she has to avenge. We will see in future episodes, Rebecca changing her mind about her past and about what it means for her future. So that's season one, episode seven, Make Rebecca Great Again, a title which does hint at the fact that this is a pivotal episode in making her great again, in returning to her glory. As uh, Sassy says to Keeley, that's not Rebecca you see there. The Rebecca I know is silly. The Rebecca I know is never cold. We know that there is another Rebecca, a less cold, a less serious, a more silly, a more warm Rebecca waiting to be reborn. It's tantalizing, right? I just wonder what kind of a corner this show has to turn, though, if they're going to take Rebecca and make her great again. We shall see. So that's season one, episode seven, Make Rebecca Great Again. Coming up, season one, episode eight, The Diamond Dogs, in which we see Nate, Higgins, Beard build their EQ 